This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. And, and I publish my life on the internet and it doesn't make people want to be with me. It makes people not trust me, and I don't know what the f*** to do about it. I want to relate so badly. (laughs) And I can't find people I can relate to. From the Kardashians and One Direction to Kelly Clarkson and Donald Trump, every influencer and reality star owes a debt to Justin Hall, the world's first ever blogger. If oversharing online has become a disease, I like to think of Justin as patient zero of our social influenza. And yet, you've probably never heard of him. I'm a 20-year-old guy. I can write about my life, and thousands of people will come and read it every day. This is really a revolution. His is a tale of the cautionary variety. When he was just eight, his father killed himself in a corner of the family home. Justin went to therapy, where he developed a penchant for oversharing to anyone who'd listen, judge, and advise. The web came around at just the right time, allowing him an outlet for these thoughts and feelings. For some time, he was the darling of the early web, and he amassed a following in the tens of thousands in the early 90s. Steadfast in his commitment to document every minor and major detail in his life and lay himself bare, he quite literally lay himself bare, his sexy pornographic photos juxtaposing well with images of his flaccid, infected penis, a work of art he calls catdick. What would happen if you went all the way, being radically honest, totally transparent, exposing yourself to distant strangers? Why would anyone want to do that? As friends and family began to call him out for writing about them on the net, Justin fell apart, leading to the breakdown video you heard at the top of this recording. You'll find that, along with everything else, on his blog, links.net, which has been running since 1993 in its original format. It's a digital museum. The highlights of his story include the time he travelled across the States to meet his followers and teach them to make their own websites, and the time he had a physical altercation with writer Kurt Vonnegut. All of this has led him, I'm pleased and humbled to say, to a conversation on this podcast about how it all began, what led to his breakdown, and how he sees the future of online sharing, blogging, and influencing. We also talk about Cat Dick. Are the world's first ever blogger is that right no hmm. what about samuel peeps well no he didn't blog because he didn't publish it um but you know i yeah. mean i think uh i'm early i like to say i'm early and 
you know, some folks have called me first and I've repeated those statements, but you know, uh, you know, Sure, I was very early. Definitely one of the first people on the internet to take all their clothes off and try to tell their personal truth in hypertext yeah. with clickable links and pictures. I've seen it all. I've, I've that's all. probably safe to say. You know what? You're more similar to Samuel Pepys in that sense than than. Do you know my favorite Samuel Pepys story was that he used to go to church and uh, learn to masturbate without touching himself. Wow. Yeah. I listened to Kenneth Bernard read his uh, diaries aloud, hmm. and that wasn't in there. It's very possible that the, because I studied English years ago at university, so it's very possible yeah. the teacher was uh, making fun of us. Uh, <laughs> I should look that up. Should I look that up? Yeah, time to go back. <laughs> Samuel Pepys, whose name is spelt ridiculously. Um, yes. Masturbate in church, no hands. <laughs> this is your google history here we go here we go while he yeah i know oh you did mate i, I i've been investigating uh pedophiles it's one of the videos i'm going to release soon so my 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 history is pretty crazy uh a sad history <laughs> while he mastered the art of masturbation without using his hands there's something here in the independent.co.uk which is a, there you a go. reputable source um which isn't what you were doing on your blog, but they were—they both featured, um, you know, appendages. You know, I was definitely using my hands. <laughs> yeah, to create a blog. <laughs> yes, and to digest whatever was going on. And yeah, well, everybody knows who the Kardashians are. They don't necessarily know who you are, and they—I think they should do because I think your life is infinitely more. I don't want to sound like a sycophant, uh, but infinitely more interesting than theirs. So, would you be able to? Where could you start? At the beginning, a little bit. So, what what happened? My father had uh, a lot. He had had a lot to drink. That was part of what was his challenge: is that he had a lot to drink, and as a result of him drinking a lot, it led him to a place where he couldn't stay alive, and he took himself out of the picture. So, I was eight when my father committed suicide, and that was a very challenging. Obviously, it's a very challenging situation for any family. Uh, in our case, my mom was able to find, um, you know, excellent child psychologists who, uh, you know, I saw a child psychologist like two or three days a week for years. Mm -hmm. And I think that practice of sort of talking about myself and telling someone who I think I am and having someone actually listen and go through things with me left me with this practice of talking to myself about myself or listening to myself talk about myself or getting outside of my problems and framing them. Um, I'm also just a wordy guy. So I, my timing was, you know, I was a citizen graduating high school, you know, at the age of 17 in 1993. And by the time I got to college, I was like, oh my God, this, you can click a link. Before the web, you had to type everything into the internet. The internet was there and it was filled with all kinds of weird stuff. But you had to type everything. It was like you had to know the spells to cast. What was the internet for someone like myself and probably a lot of the listeners? What actually? Mm -hmm. What's the best way of describing what the internet was? A giant inbox filled with messages that you could only read if you typed the right sequence of commands, mm. and you couldn't really search across the whole internet. You had to go to each individual little server. So you go to, and most of them were at schools. 
So you go to some school server and they'd be like, here's our archive of volcanic data. Mm. Or here's our collection of like scanned Milton poems or whatever. You know, they would have these stashes of information in these university servers and you could bounce between these public servers. And then there was something called news groups. And the news groups were basically a little bit like Reddit or Twitter where anyone who was on the internet could post. It wasn't anonymous, but you could post and you could post about what you liked in these various topic areas. And there were thousands of topics. So I was in high school looking at news groups and, you know, I liked Frank Zappa or I liked, I was, you know, bisexually curious or I was, you know, excited about Japanese comics. And those were things that maybe I couldn't check out in my school, but I could go read about online and be like, oh my God, the world's crazy and it's much bigger than I knew from what Mm. Chicago had to show me. You could download images, which was very exciting because you could download pornography, but it was quite innocent. It would be like a scanned magazine, mostly innocent. And then it would load, the way the graphics worked, it would load one line at a time and your modem was really slow. So you'd be like, wow. Oh, I think it's a person with brown hair. Oh, they have brown hair. Whoa, their hair's pretty long. Are they going to wear a shirt? Oh my God, they're not wearing a shirt. Wow, you know, and you'd sort of watch the reveal of the images. So when I saw the web where it's like, oh, there's images and text and there's a link and you can click on the link and go to another image. It's like, whoa, this is really, they've really fixed this this internet thing up. There's quite a lot more to, to get around with. So I started making a lot of web pages because the work in writing and sharing that I was excited about could now be done by connecting pieces visually for people. There was a period very early on, I think, where where you said um, that you had, there were about 600 uh, websites in the world. So you were able to, in one weekend, put up a link to every single one and, and sort of write something about each one. Oh, thank you. I love that you have read some of what I've said and <laughs> stitched it together into a story. Let me say that in the early yeah. days, there were hundreds of yeah. sites and you could surf the whole thing in a couple of weekends. But when I put up my pages, I made these subject area directories, sort of like, what's weird? Uh-huh. What's sexy? What's, a, what's on there about drugs? Where would you find music? So I was doing these topic areas, like here's 10 gr- great, cool links about music. Here's five great links about Native American indigenous knowledge. Here's... And there were no search engines, so you had to go from one site to another. So if you went across the public web in early 1994 and you didn't find what you thought should be there, you should make it. I felt personally called to, like, you know, post a lot of links. And for me, it was like, wow, now there's no editors, no publishers, no gatekeepers. Check it out, everybody. Here's the crazy people talking. Wow. And and how did it turn then from uh, what was essentially a one-way sort of publication into a, into a conversation? Yeah. You know, I put my email address up and people started writing me. So I'm putting up all these links and email was the only way to speak back. There's not really, com- there were no comments on web pages. There were no web forms to write your details in. And, you know, there were mo- no message boards on the web. My very first web pages were a lot about the web itself. Here's what I'm finding. Let me give you a tour. I called the site Links from the Underground. Hmm. Uh, so come visit my links. I'll show you around the web. I'll give you a tour. Oh. And then enough people were checking that out. I said, oh, well, if you come for the web tour, meet your tour guide. You know, my dad died. I have this girlfriend, but then we broke up and, you know, I like to masturbate or whatever. Like I'm 19. Here's all my thoughts, you know? Um, so then people started writing me with their thoughts and their stories. 
and it got pretty heavy pretty fast because my my bet Andrew was that I was going to tell very personal revealing difficult stories about my life and that would make the media more human and it would help promote empathy right if people could say oh this guy he may be like a child of privilege and he may be like another white guy ranting about what he likes but his dad died that makes him interesting and oh he, you know and oh he has feelings about these people and you know somehow that would help people see me and then Maybe I could see them. I, you know, people would write me and say, my dad also died or I drink too much and your, your reading you made me want to stop drinking or whatever. And I would say, wow, mm. you just gave me like a very big emotional load over email that I don't feel qualified to hold because I'm not a trauma counselor. I'm not a therapist. I don't know what the next thing to say to you is after you tell me that you want to stay alive and stop drinking. And so my advice to all of them was, you should have your own webpage because then you can publish these things that you want to tell me and find an audience of your own and help. Yeah. It was a very yeah. idealistic uh, sort of notion, but you know, I put up some tutorials and I think I was able to help a lot of people take that first step of, oh, maybe I will try being on the web. And, and a lot of people sort of came on the web and said, I'm going to have a diary and I'm going to tell people what I'm about. And I would encourage those people, let's all have diaries. We'll build empathy. We'll read each other's diaries. But after a few years, it's like we, we all sort of looked around and said, oh, man, di having a diary in public, if you really want to be honest, is kind of not sustainable. You know, the, the Internet grew. They invented search engines. And suddenly being vulnerable in public imp started implicating other people, started implicating people in their jobs and became socially untenable for most folks unless you were explicitly a performer, right? And this is what you could do to be in public, which you you know, you mentioned this family, the Kardashian family of Los Angeles. They are people for whom they have adapted living in public as a as a as a profession, as a vocation. A performance. A performance. For me, I, you know, I thought everybody would do it as like a social connection. But I think that was extremely naive and, and, and maybe appropriate for what the Internet was in 1994 and appropriate for a 19-year-old Justin. Mm. But today, I'm mm. not doing that myself. I don't share on the Internet. I don't have time to, to live in public as a vocation. I had this moment when my passion, my interest, my need to share and connect with people connected, you know, aligned with this new technology. And I created mm. a, an autobiography on the Internet that's like, thousands of individual HTML pages connected together with links. You know, it's a relic. Because every time I look at it, I want to fix something. But, you know, I think for other people to look at, it's like yeah. that my web page today is a vision of what I thought the web was going to look like. And it's it's a museum, man. It's yeah, please don't change don't change a thing because it it really looks amazing now. I mean, that's one of the few surviving relics, as you say. It's so fascinating. I'd encourage anyone to go and have a look at that website because it's just nostalgia alone now they've got to have a look and there are certain things they have to see i think uh, which we'll get onto in a bit i think but um but yeah the way you described it just now with, with people who um people would get in touch and you didn't know what to say so you'd encourage that they uh, make a website and i suppose they would get emails from people and not know what to say and encourage others it sounds a little bit like a pyramid scheme um do you know what i mean there's no <laughs> everybody's sort of Absolutely. is any did, did it did any of it work to actually help you feel better you know, I think for me, what was really intoxicating was I started hearing, just hearing from people who didn't necessarily, you know, uh, give me a trauma that they needed me to hold, but just said, hey, 
you've given me confidence to be myself in my community or you've given me an idea for a project I want to do or would you please come talk to our group and so I got a tremendous amount of enrichment I just was like pay attention to me please pay attention to me mm. and people were like oh this is a new medium and here's a performer I'll pay attention to you and so I got a lot out of that sort of architecture yeah. and then I realized there was too much attention for me to handle at my peak in January 1995, I had like 27,000 daily readers. You know, for like a 20-year-old guy writing a web page, mm -hmm. like with 27,000 daily readers, it was an enormous amount of sort of just attention to be sure. channeling. And so yeah. for me to be able to like, hey, you, let's let's go look at this other person. Let's look at this other person. Let's spread this around. You start a web page. You start a web page. I'm going to send people over there. I didn't, I didn't even want 27,000 daily readers. Because they, you know, they wanted from me. They wanted me to like up the ante, to be more interesting, to mm. be to, for things to happen, and and I and so it was better for me to say, well, let's get more people up on stage. I'm not, you know, holy smokes, this is a little crazy. I was part of a group of people that felt very idealistic. We're gonna make the internet a post TV, no filters human expression wonderland mm, you know mm. and so other people who came in there i think for for a little golden age we felt like oh my god it's true the internet is this incredible place mm. but if you looked at it it was like white people who like went to colleges like that that was the internet oh so i look at the internet today and the breadth of people who are on the internet like i could use the internet yeah. to send like a text yeah. message just to, to like a somebody very far away in a very different life and I think that's yeah. what the dream of the internet is. Although hopefully no one will notice that um, we're a couple of middle-class uh, white males <laughs> right now. I'm sure people will notice yeah. and maybe they'll watch it because it's still meaningful to them. And maybe, you know, we're part of history and so that matters, but maybe it's only our story and it's only for us, you mm -hmm. know, and that's, that's okay, right? If you want to tell your story in public, you have to be okay just talking to yourself. What sort of possessed you to put uh, pictures of your flaccid penis on the web? And were, were they the, is that the sort of one of the very first dick pics? Uh, I mean, I think, a, I think inherent in the dick pic form is that it's like a person to person sort of sending. <laughs> I think the, the urge to sort of splash one's genitals out on a larger stage way predates me. Anything having to do with sex on my webpage was very popular. I said, I got to get more sex content to put on my webpage. <laughs> so I had photos of myself that my ex-girlfriends had taken or that I had or whatever. And so I was like, well, I'll just put up centerfolds of myself. Yeah. If there's no gatekeeper, you can put up sexy photos of yourself. Yeah. And why not? Uh, and I felt sexy and wanted to be cool. And, you know, so, and it's fun. It was just fun for me. So there, I didn't see the sex, the sexy photos. I just saw the photo of uh, what you called cat dick. Oh, yeah. Oh, no, <laughs> I have a, a page uh, of centerfolds of me. You know, it was just a wild ride. I'm posting these sexy photos of myself and stories about, you know, psilocybin mushroom trips or like school papers yeah. and my website accumulating all this materials, poems about people and yeah. you know i would go to a party and come home and write up like what i thought about somebody search engines started coming out and then people i loved and knew and you know was acquainted with started searching for their names mm. and the very mm. ser first search result for a lot of people was you know justin says that i am emblematic of late stage capitalism you know right. or justin yeah. says we had a great time on mushrooms or 
Justin took this photo of himself naked right after he visited my house. And they and they said, I don't want to be implicated in any of this stuff that you're writing on your crazy webpage about your thing. This isn't my thing. Was that hurtful for you? Yeah, well, it was it was like I thought I'm building empathy. I'm telling my story. I'm being honest. And then I realized after a while, like my honesty implicates other people and it's not it's like it's it's aggressive. It was an aggressive act to write about other people on the web and use their name without their permission. And I found myself thinking like, you know, I'm not, am I an investigative journalist? Am I like some kind of investigative journalist, like exposing my friends? That's not true. I don't want to expose my friends. I like my friends. I don't Mm. need. It does sound a little bit like an early version of Vice Media. Well, I think I'm, you know, I was 19. Like what's interesting to a 19 year old? Like (laughs) loud, aggressive music, like good interesting brain bending mm-hmm. substances and boobs and you yeah. know like yeah. making myself hard you know like i don't know that's that's that's, that's vice isn't it that's that's what vice is you know i was really turned off by vice when i saw the early print issues um because they would make fun of disabled people oh. and i remember thinking oh. like man vice this is cruel like you got a magazine you're trying to be cool and you're yeah. making fun of disabled people like i just don't that's the criticism, isn't it? Because they, I think, uh, dress themselves up as as maybe the saviors, the left wing uh, progressives. And uh, yeah, it's not just what you're talking. That's a surprise to me. I didn't know they were making fun of disabled people. No, I don't think they were social. I don't think they were like left wing progressives. I think they were like libertines uh-huh. and liberals. They were like, we uh-huh. like personal freedoms. But I'm not sure they were like in favor of a big social safety net or something. You okay. know? Yeah, it sort of went a bit more that way. But then there was still, despite that, there were a lot of uh, rumors and things about the way women were treated in the, in the offices there. And- oh, yeah. And that was that was after they'd raised like half a million, half a billion dollars in funding from like Disney and Miramax or whatever. Like mm-hmm. they they stra- they went into the stratosphere. This is I think I saw these things. I saw that, like, if I took sex on the Internet and I was organized about it, I could build a big business. Mm. Somebody was going to make a big business out of like being kind of a little bit mean on the internet. I stopped using last names, and I tried to find ways that were just about embarrassing me. In 1998, for example, I published like all my expenses, my tax returns, right. and make myself vulnerable or make myself an open book for other people, but not implicate my friends and family. And I tried and tried and tried, and finally, you know, by about 2004... I was done. I couldn't do it anymore. Uh, and I had to basically retire in 2005. I got the impression that, yeah, the, the realization that you were hurting uh, people around you, it, it sort of crippled you. It was, it was maybe more than it would other people. It really, really hurt you. If I'm, you know, making a web page because I want attention and I want attention because I need human connection <laughs> yeah, or okay. I need, yeah. you know, feedback. And suddenly I've got all these strangers on the internet who think I'm really interesting, but aren't afraid to yell at me. And I've got my friends and family who are with me and they're nice and they're talking in a normal tone of voice and they're willing to hug me, but I'm scaring them because of my webpage. Like, which group do I want to favor in my life? That led to that that video in 2005, which was the same year as that really famous video of the, the Britney video. Do you remember that one? Leave Britney alone. Tell me about it. There was a guy uh, who didn't look too dissimilar to you, who had very long blonde hair. That's that's the only thing that was similar. <laughs> yeah, I think. Are you sure it wasn't you? But uh, <laughs> and this guy um, basically got very upset about the way the media was treating. Uh, you look like Johnny Depp now, uh, with the 
you know, but nowadays Johnny Depp, not the old Johnny Depp. <laughs> but uh, uh, yeah, he got very upset about the way people were treating Britney. Your thing was a lot more personal, but it was around the same time. Um, what led to that? What can you can you take me through? You're sitting there. I met a woman that I was very infatuated with quickly, and I went to see her, and I was writing about it on my site, and you know, blogging about this new infatuation and excitement. And I had people who basically had read my archives and we're doing like a kind of like a textual analysis like emotional textual analysis like well you know in 2002 you said you were with amy for these reasons and then you broke up with her for this oh but then you God. were with this other person for these reasons and now based on these patterns the way you're approaching this new relationship is doomed. Suddenly people are like inside my head oh, based on all the material I'd given them for that reason. I wanted the, I thought I wanted them inside my head. But then they're like second guessing my emotions and second guessing my relationships. And I'm like, this is a nightmare. Oh, my and my, my, the woman I was infatuated with who was responding to my infatuations was like, I don't want to be on this website with strangers, you know, sort of picking apart our relationship. Please don't include me. And I said, oh my God, if the person that I want to talk to and share myself with can't be on my website, then what is my website without this love? And I felt so, and so I was like, I either have to be with the person I love or be with this audience on the web. Yeah. Love was much more compelling. And so I was like, I got to unplug from the web. And, you know, I'd had a habit now of, like, talking to myself on the Internet for 10 years. So it was, like, pretty, you know, emotionally challenging to stop. Um, and I, uh, you know, but I knew I was going through something. So I turned on the camera. I'm flipping out, but I'll turn on the camera. Uh, so, um, you know, recorded myself basically sobbing. Yeah. Posted that online, saying, oh, I just had a breakdown. I, I'm feeling so weird about my website. And then people from Ebaum's world found uh, this, which was like an early website where people did, you know, messaging and sort of a lot of yeah. like teen boy hijinks. Yeah. And uh, and some people were like, oh, here's this guy. Here's his address. Here's his phone number. Here's the name oh. and address and oh. phone number of the woman that he's infatuated with. We should contact these people and teach them a lesson. Oh, my. What, what lesson? Well, I think it had to do with uh, not being a if I remember what the message board said. Oh. Uh, so, you know, when you read something like that, right, you're like, I'm going to share my soul with the internet because it'll help connect people. And, and oh, I've fallen in love and I'm so confused. And then someone's like, oh, yeah, we're going to come over to your place and teach you a lesson. It's like, whoa, I, I, I don't think I want you in my life anymore. I don't think I, I want this stranger in my home. I don't think I want this person to know who I like. I don't think... I, I couldn't trust the population of the internet felt like a not friendly place to me all of a sudden. So the person you were in love with, was this, was it a man? No, it was, a, it was I, no, I look, I, I, I'm really straight. Like I, I think guys are attractive and some of them are beautiful. Some of them smell really nice. Some of them are good kissers, but when you come down to it, I dig chicks. Okay. But so, so they, it was it that they felt that you were acting in an effeminate way. That's exactly right. You know, I think the f it stuff is more about, whoa, what's up with Mr. Feelings? You know, mm -hmm. or like, why is this guy crying in public? What kind of weakness bullshit is that? Mm -hmm. You know, I don't know. Mm -hmm. But it was just very strange to be like, I'm in love with this woman. Well, we're going to come teach you a lesson. It. Like, I don't even know. But all I knew is that these people had 
angry energy and I had made myself a target and I had made this woman I loved a target. Mm -hmm. So I was like, this is not bueno, right? This is not the, like, this is not the, the internet I, of my dreams, you know? Mm -hmm. Now, of course, I think like people sling mud like crazy, you know, they... Yeah. We're used to it now. It must have been so shocking at the time, though, because we're so used to trolls and everything now. You just go, okay, yeah, another idiot, you know. Well, no, I don't think people go, oh, yeah, another idiot. I think people go, oh, my God, I can't believe it. Somebody, <laughs> put, you know, because I think anyone can be on Instagram or Twitter or Facebook or whatever and say something. And then there's somebody who makes a joke before they get on an airplane about Africa and they get off the airplane and they've lost their jobs and everybody hates them. I'm interested in how you felt seeing someone like, I think her name was Justine Sachs. Was that, was that Sacco? Justine Sacco? Oh, the fired person on the airplane? Yeah, she said, I'm going to Africa. I hope I don't get AIDS. Just kidding. I'm white. I think she thought she was being funny. Yeah. Um, but you know, this, the joke that would play well to her 50 followers does not play well to you know a lot of other people yeah i don't know how you maintain your honest speech or your incorrect sense of humor and be in a public space i mean i think we are in a massive learning exercise of trying to figure out how do we ethically talk honestly mm -hmm. in a giant place yeah you know with billions of other people by the time we figure it out we'll have invented new mediums that make it mm -hmm. all the more challenging but you know, we're learning that, oh, this is what it's like when a world leader sort of shares what's on the top of their mind every moment with no filter. <laughs> it's crazy. Like, it's kind it's of unpleasant. Crazy. Yeah. You know? Sort of almost funny. Yes. If you have enough distance from it. If yeah. you don't feel vulnerable yeah. or attacked. A few decades ago, private citizens used to be largely that. Private. What's changed? The internet. Think about everything you've browsed, searched for, watched or tweeted. Now imagine all of that data being crawled through, collected and aggregated by third parties into a permanent public record. Your record. Having your private life exposed for others to see was once something only celebrities worried about. But in an era where everyone is online, everyone is a public figure. To keep my data private when I go online, I turn to ExpressVPN. Did you know there are hundreds of data brokers out there whose sole business is to buy and sell your data? The worst part is they don't have to tell you who they're selling it to or get your consent. One of these data points is your IP address. Data harvesters use your IP to uniquely identify you and your location. But with ExpressVPN, my connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server and my IP address is masked. Every time I turn ExpressVPN on, I'm given a random IP address shared by other ExpressVPN customers. That makes it more difficult for third parties to identify me and harvest my data. And the best part is how easy ExpressVPN is to use. No matter what device you're on, phone, laptop or smart TV, all you have to do is tap one button to get protected. So if, like me, you believe that your data is your business, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN on the market. Visit expressvpn.com slash heretics and get three extra months for free. That's expressvpn.com slash heretics. Go to expressvpn.com slash heretics to learn more. Hey, it's Andrew. If you're enjoying Heretics, there's another podcast I want to recommend to you, especially if climate change, global conflicts and an upcoming election are making you feel like we're on the brink of disaster. What Could Go Right is hosted by Progress Network founder Zachary Carabell and executive director Emma Varvalukas. On What Could Go Right, the hosts sit down with expert guests to discuss the world's most pressing issues without resorting to pessimism or despair that we hear so often. Instead, they look back at how far society has come and look forward at what it will take 
to achieve an even brighter future. Is progress on the way? They may not have all the answers, but on what could go right, they're asking the key questions. Tune in to hear interviews with upcoming guests like writer Coleman Hughes, CNN host Fareed Zakaria, and economist Alison Schrager. If you're looking for a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people, join them every Wednesday on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Do you find, it seems like you maybe get more emotional around other people, um, sort of worrying about other people's problems then, because you speak about your own past um, without so much emotion about your father, for example, something that, that that might trigger other people. It feels like you can speak quite calmly about that. Well, but I mean, I that happened like 30 some years ago. So, I mean, I've That's had true. a chance to sort of digest a lot of the dad stuff, but I think you, you raise a very interesting point, Andrew. Uh, you know, this is a nice psychoanalyst a- a- analysis podcast for me, gracias. Um, <laughs> but basically, you know, I think, you know, reconciling with a parent who commits suicide is a bit about saying, wow, somebody I love had problems so big that they couldn't be with me. And then in my life, wrestling with, oh, what would a problem be so big that I would want to stop living, right? Because my dad, because he chose to leave, I'm thinking like, well, oh, what would make me choose to leave? And then I think I would never choose to leave. And then I'm like, now I'm a dad and I'm a dad with a job and I'm I'm starting a company and I got people who depend on me and can I be there for everybody and, and for my wife and my mom? And, you know, and, and as I think through all this, this pressure and stuff and, and wanting to be there for people, I think, oh, this is a glimpse of some of the pressure that maybe my dad felt. And, and so just understanding that other people's burdens can affect you. I don't know. That's a good question. I don't, I don't know uh, if I'm uniquely attuned to the suffering of other people. I mean, other people's problems are, are soon and often your problem, you know? Yeah, we've all had that feeling, I think, when you overshare a little bit and then the person you overshared with comes back with a bit more analysis than you necessarily asked for and you've invited them in. Right, or, or like a list of, of really pointed recommendations and you're like, well, I was just kind of talking, <laughs> but I didn't need advice. I don't really want to quit my job yeah. and move to another place. Yeah, you know? take up with your girlfriend. But I think, yes, right. Oh, well, okay, I guess maybe. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think right yeah. now it's tough because I feel that there's important things being said in public about police brutality in my country and all over the world. All these things where, you know, I have opinions, but I don't wade in because it's hard to be a public partisan these days. I feel like if you're not going to be a thoroughly public person with all of your experience and feelings. So, you know, you look at someone like a Kardashian or a Trump or some of these people, they have... A, a constitution that enables them to to take the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune in public in front of all these people and brush off the the people who hate them and say no thank you to the haters and persist 
I'm I I don't I'm not built that way for this moment of public combat. You're the Hamlet. You're more of a Hamlet, and uh, Trump is uh, what was it? It's not King Duncan, is it? Uh, the uncle bloke. Oh um, yeah, right. Uh, uh, Scar. I was going to say oh, Scar. Scar. I was going to say Scar. Yes. <laughs> That's so funny. I was thinking Scar, and I thought, will he get that reference? Maybe I don't know. The... <laughs> I got a kid. Yeah. That's why. Because I'm like, what happens when my daughter finds my web page? And then what happens when her friends in middle school find my webpage? Yeah. You know, like, oh, your daddy's wiener is small. Or like, your daddy said, you know, yeah. whatever. I don't know. What are they going to yeah. say? You know? It looks perfectly normal to me, apart from the redness. <laughs> well, that yes. In 2001, I moved to Japan where I wasn't affecting the people in my life so much. Mm. I um, went to a rural place and, um, you know, got... Something kind of weird happened to my penis, yeah. and I was really kind of far away from a lot of people who could help me with it. So I posted a picture of yeah. it uh, and tried to make it funny because it was a sad-looking penis, but tried to make it funny. It is funny. Thank it is you. funny. And and I posted it on my website and said, could somebody help me diagnose this? And somebody did. Within a few hours, they were like, oh, it looks like you have this. Yeah. This is the problem, and it's fine. It'll go away. So it's like, I love the Internet. That was a great moment for the Internet. And then there's the cat dick page, which is still up. And, you know, it's, it's really not a, a, a great page for polite company. But, you know, part of what I've tried to do is to honor my own sense of amusement and uh, my voice when I was that age. Yeah. And, you know, it, I wouldn't put it up today, maybe, but it, I thought it was funny then. It's definitely funny. I mean, it's part of who you are. Yeah, I think leave it. I love looking at the photos of when I was 15 and I looked like an idiot with all my hair everywhere and all this stuff. You know, why would you want to get rid of that stuff? Yeah. Do you think having a family, um, that sort of scratched the itch that the, the blog was trying to scratch? The importance and the prominence and the value of these kids in my life is so large yeah. that it's pushed a lot of other things aside. Because I lost my dad, you know, my wife just took my kids out on an excursion and I was you know, brushing my son's hair, you know, like an hour and a half ago and thinking, I hope this isn't the last time I see you. But if it is the last time I see you, you're a wonderful person and I love you so much. It's so interesting. Having to pay attention to another child has, you know, helped uh, free me from wanting attention from other people. Do you still have moments? Uh, there must be moments where, because I guess that never really entirely leaves you, where you feel like you, you wish you had the blog, uh, that it was bigger or that that you could say something and people would listen and it could make you feel better in some way? Or is that gone? I, I used to be famous on the internet. I'm very flattered that someone like you would call me and take an interest in what I have to say. I like hearing myself talk, so I get a pleasure out of doing this. But there's- yeah, I know that feeling. So many other people have stepped into the spotlight. And when I look at the people who are really in the spotlight, I think I am not, I am not them. Mm. Mm. I mean, there's a there's a Jake and Logan Paul are these young men yep, who basically have these video series where they stunt stunt around. Yeah, I think it's a young person's game in some ways, or it's a person with a big issue. Like if I'm like, you know, someday I'm like, there's something I understand deeply and I need to tell the world, I will tell the world. And I will tell the world emphatically, repeatedly, <laughs> and through whatever means I can get my hands on. Yeah. And in 1994, it was... Holy shit, have you seen the web? Yeah. <laughs> Holy shit, have you seen the web? I got to tell you, the web's amazing. You got to see the web. And that's and then they saw the web, yeah. you know? Yeah. So now I don't need to tell I you. I think that'll be one of the teasers for this podcast. <laughs> but, you know, yeah. um, 
it's interesting because because I I feel like you're a very authentic person. That what that's what it's always been about. And then I've been speaking to academics who study the field, and they talk about parasocial relations um, and uh, calibrated amateurism. This, this sort of fake way of setting a stage in, in which you're friends with the person but I don't feel like they really care about the, pe- the people in their group I think it, you know whereas I get I got the sense with you that you really really did and maybe that's that's gone now the innocence of the internet and now it's it, that, is that, I mean is that too negative what I'm saying yes <laughs> I think here's what here's what I would like to say yeah there are new ways of expression being born all these things are continually new ways, especially for young people, to find that feel authentic to them. I never want to say the moment has passed for authenticity or the moment has passed for true connection or the moment has passed to really blow people's minds. I hope to live for decades to come and to see this pass where people will say, here it is. There's a new medium and we're using it. And this is how people can really honestly and empathically connect. And I think when we look at these influencers and we say, wow, they're so successful, I look at them and I say, you know, for the next year and a half, they've got a lot of people paying attention to them. They've hired up a staff and most of them are going to, most of that situation is going to end with somebody having to do something else. There's not like 20 million exercise gurus on Instagram who are all going to make $200,000 a year. Mm. You know, there's like 50 of those people. And then there's a lot of people who do it on the side. People use the internet to show their best face. And that's what I tried to do when I was on the internet is to show some of my worst faces, yeah, right? Yeah. Like, hey, am I racist? Let me write this up because I think I just did something that might be racist. Right, you know, right, like, right, right, like right. as opposed to like, hey, look, I'm with beautiful black people. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. I must love black people. I mean, I'm in my 40s. So when I grew up, people and TV networks chose who the heroes were, Right. I think it's better than anyone can put themselves mm. out there to be a hero, mm. but we need to have more hero filters. Yeah, yeah. That's what I was talking about with the gatekeepers um, and the TV channels and everything. That's how I personally feel. And now the TV channels are not doing very well at all. So I think it's the right time to sort of move on. And- well, okay. So the TV channels are being super squeezed by the internet because everybody's yeah. watching all sorts of other stuff. So why do they care about what's on TV? And so now the TV says, if you want to be on TV, you got to prove that you can command attention on the internet. And how do you command attention on the internet? By being loud, by being persistent, yeah. by being difficult, by being, you know, lucky. I mean, you are persistent. You've made a number of interrogations of interesting people and tried to tease out the themes that you're exploring through conversations with other people. Mm. But it may turn out, Andrew, that talking to people that you're fascinated with is not a big money maker. <laughs> And you just have to find a way to do it. And you continually have to beg with gatekeepers and you continually have to question whether you're selling your soul if you, you know, do this other gig on the side and you'll continually have to. And that is the wage. You know, you you will get to talk to fascinating people around the world, but in exchange, you're going to have to work really hard to get people to pay you. Yeah. Which is a... That's one scenario. It's a nice trade-off for now. I've had a nice time. Uh... Um, there's a great analogy a guy named Darius Kazemi made, which is like every time you post on the internet, you're buying a kind of a lottery ticket yeah. that you're saying, maybe this one is going to like spark people's imagination. Yeah, yeah, I guess so. Well, and and the world will come to you and say, tell me more, yeah. give me more, Andrew. <laughs> For me, it's just, uh, I guess the way to do that is just to find the people who really interest me and then just see what happens, I suppose.
Well, because then even if your lottery ticket doesn't go anywhere, you've enjoyed the conversation and you've learned what you oh, want to yeah. learn, which is a very enviable position, right? To be able to learn in public if you like learning. Yeah. You know? Oh, yeah. And the people are it's just amazing experiences, including this one. And speaking of amazing experiences, here's a subtle segue, because I've mentioned this to you before. Uh, but I just because one of my favorite ever writers is Kurt Vonnegut. Uh, oh, sure. So <laughs> do you mind telling me that because you've already told me, but the Kurt Vonnegut story. I went to see him speak and during the speech, I think he was sort of disparaging computers. And I mean, he was just ornery and cranky about it, all kinds of stuff and funny, you know, and, and, and honest, but very cranky and older and kind of like, and so he, um, I went up to him afterwards and I was sort of, you know, in my, and I, at this time I had long hair and I had stopped combing mm. it. I was still uh, washing it, but I had stopped combing it and it had begun to form into a sort of like a, a hair nest right, right. on top of my head. Um, yeah, I actually, yeah, so actually I still have it here. Oh. This is my, this is my hair nest. Uh, anyway, so I had this hair nest. I got it in a bag. Well, what do you, uh, what, so what do you mean like, you still have, what is that? This is a clump of hair I cut off my head in 1996. It's like a clump of hair that grew, that, for, that fashioned itself like roughly here. Why, right why are they just on the shelf behind you? And, you know, you got to keep the stuff that's important to you. And I'm like, hey, Kurt Vonnegut, the internet's amazing. You got to get, like, I can, can write and I can connect with people and I don't need a publisher. It's totally amazing. And he was, uh, I think he was talking about like, the tactility of paper yeah. and the like yeah. the honest communication that happens when people are exchanging things like documents and manuscripts and like conversation and so he grabbed me by the back of my hair can you get this from a computer can you get this from a computer because i kept talking to him he was like no you're wrong and wanted me to go yeah. away and i wouldn't go away so he finally yeah. grabbed me by the hair shook my head and said can you get this from a computer can you get this from a computer and then stormed off wow <laughs> did it hurt I mean, I was just like adrenaline, you know. Did it hurt emotionally? <laughs> no, you know, because I wasn't looking for approval from him. Uh, and I was so firmly convinced of my point that I thought, oh, he's wrong. He's being left behind by the computer. Yeah. I mean, I was like pretty evangelical, right? Mm -hmm. So if, if I came to you and I gave you the truth yeah. and you didn't buy it, I was like, oh, too bad, yeah. Kurt Vonnegut, um, you know? What's the a quick sort of future? Do you have an idea of where this where blogging and everything is going? I, I don't know, um, you know, that I can really say what the future of expression is, except that um, people won't be stopped from talking about themselves and to themselves. And um, the challenges of how you can be open to hear from billions of strangers but you only want to hear from the ones you like and you want to protect yourselves from the ones that scare you is a very big human challenge. Mm -hmm. And what's so funny for me to think is as soon as we learn how to be together in this current medium, we're going to invent new stuff that'll make it hard to be together again. So that's telepathy. <laughs> I don't know how we handle te telepathic blogging. It's ahead of my time. Yeah. You know. Do you think telepathy is actually next? I, I think we got some more steps before we get there mm. that will help uh, that will help telepathy seem more normal. But if you had if you th if you had told me yeah. or anyone in America 20 years ago the president of the United States is going to tell you what he's thinking every half an hour he's awake, like by typing a short telegram out to the world, 
people would have said that doesn't seem like why why would that be leadership what what are we what is that what value who does that yeah. that's not normal no it's not normal but then neither is justin and i'm delighted to have had one of the pioneers of the internet and standout figures of the 20th century on my show I'm pleased to see that Justin appears to have shed his need for approval and found love and acceptance in his family. I love that Kurt Vonnegut story, but Justin has a million tales just like that that didn't quite make the cut as I'm trying to keep the podcast relatively short because of your dwindling attention spans. But if you are hungry for more, do go check out his website, links.net. You can also find the video version of this podcast on my YouTube channel. Just type the Andrew Gold podcast, Justin Hall, into the search. Uh, And that features a bunch of clips uh, also from links.net. That gives you an idea of the kind of excellent material Justin has up there. Also go to bud.com for Justin's marijuana company. Uh, Only the world's first ever blogger could get a domain name like that, bud.com. Quite amazing. If you appreciate this podcast, which takes a hell of a lot of work, uh, please do subscribe and like and leave a review if you can. And next week I'll be talking to Race Cooper, a former porn actor, on racism he experienced in the porn industry. So you better subscribe. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.